Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Everyone I talk to wants to know how to influence, which means they want to know how to persuade. In effect, they want to get people to do what they want them to do. So we're going to talk about this topic of influence, and we're going to do it in a two-part podcast this week and the following week. And we're going to dig into the details about influence. So in this first podcast, I want to focus on an issue around influence that we rarely discuss And that's the challenge of being pressed to do or say things that go against your core value or your sense of ethics. It's one of the toughest cases of influence. And by the way, this is something that research says 63% of middle managers report having experienced, whether the causes are because someone else is doing it, so you feel like you should follow along, or because no one else has spoken up, or because a person in power is applying pressure. So today, we want to talk about how do you think through these situations, what can you do? How do you influence in that context? And then next week, we're going to talk about influence when the pressure is not quite so high, the general notions of negotiation, influence, and persuasion. So my guest today is G. Richard Schell. Richard is one of my absolute all-time favorite writers and thinkers about influence. He's a faculty member at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he chairs Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethic Department. Lead with Your Values is the name of the book. It's the book we're going to talk about today. There are other books um, that have addressed any number of urgent problems in today's workplace. So we talk about how do you stand up for your core values when the pressure is on. Richard's students have included Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, Fortune 500 CEOs, FBI hostage negotiators, Navy SEALs, UN peacekeepers, public school teachers, labor unions, nurses, hospital administrators, and a host more. Now, the previous books, one of my favorites is Bargaining for Advantage, sort of negotiation strategies for reasonable people. A second one that I also love, The Art of Woo, which was published with Maria Musa, and there are several others. Springboard is another one. They've sold all of these collectively, have sold hundreds of thousands of copies in 17 foreign languages, and which has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Inc., Financial Times, Time, Huffington Post, Real Simple, and Men's Health. Just to name a few, there are a few others as well. Richard, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you very, very much for having me. It's great to see you. Thank you. And I am delighted to have you to talk about this topic because I think it's one everyone struggles with and doesn't know what to do with. And I love the fact that we're going to start with this thing about conscience. But my first question, for somebody who studied negotiation, influence, and persuasion for your entire life and taught it, why focus on conscience? Well, that's a great question. I, I, as you said in the, uh, in the introduction, this is uh, one of these situations that has the highest consequence, even if it's not the most frequent problem. And if you think about uh, influence issues, uh, sometimes you play offense, sometimes you play defense. And um, I think it's in many ways harder to play defense 
especially when there's this kind of ethical or moral or values conflict, because the pressure to do the wrong thing or to go along with the wrong thing is coming from usually a higher authority or from a lot of people. Uh, your loyalties are going to be pinged. People are going to say, you know, do this for the team, or they're going to say, you know, we have to make our quarter. Uh, you know, everyone's paycheck depends on this. And if you're not ready for this one, um, the regret that you're going to feel, the remorse you're going to feel if you don't stand up and stand down instead can last a lifetime. So I think that um, this is the toughest nut to crack. And very often, uh, you're, the people who face the biggest pressures are lower on the totem pole. And so I, I felt that this is just a really, really important book to put out there. And my own MBA students uh, in our classrooms, uh, I teach a course on responsibility. Uh, they bring me stories, um, have brought me many, many stories of their own junior level pressures between college and MBA that's sort of in their 20s. And they, they challenged me. They, you know, they said, Professor Shell, tell us what to do. Show us what we can do here. And so the book really is a kind of guerrilla warfare guide for trying to be effective in these very high consequence situations. Right. So let's set the stage a little bit for this one. Um, it's easy to think about the big ethics violations that hit the headline news, you know, the financial crisis, the stacking financial products in the wrong direction, um, sexual harassment charges. Uh, here, I mean, we see headline news all over, and we wonder why somebody didn't say something before then. But I see, and I suspect you see from your students throughout their life, that there's a lot more subtle issues. Like, let's take a trivial one, reporting expenses. You get advice all the time in the company about, it's okay to do this, but you can't do that. And here's how you, in effect, sort of cheat at it. Um, or somebody says something that's sort of sexually or racially inappropriate. It makes you a little awkward. You don't say anything about it. Nobody speaks up about it. I think it's those smaller things that really plague people. What's your perspective on this one? I know. I don't, I, I actually think there's no such thing as a small matter when it comes to ethics and values. And the reason is that if you study some of these larger scandals, uh, whether they're sexual harassment scandals or financial scandals, and you go back to the source of them, they're very often hiding mm -hmm. in some small favor that someone asks uh, on a financial reporting issue or some um, ambiguous sexual uh, predatory move that someone decided they would just let pass. And Two things happen when you let things pass, or you involve yourself uh, by letting someone persuade you to join them in some misbehavior, even if it looks small. One is uh, you are on the slippery slope. So the next time they come to ask you, it's harder to say no because you said yes. Mm -hmm. And the next, the next request is going to increase the stakes, not going to decrease, going to increase. So now you're uh, further in. And, and the other thing that happens is once you are further in, they've got you. Because if you report later, you're reporting yourself. And, and so the high, the, 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 the fear 
that you were going to be retaliated against or that this person was going to take it out on you in some way, now is a fear that you'll be swept into the conspiracy when the authorities do follow your advice and do something about it. And um, we see that over and over. Um, uh, the, the failure to take action is itself actionable and uh, condemnatory when it comes to evaluating it morally or ethically. So I don't think there is such a thing as a small thing. Now, that doesn't mean you have to take a small thing and blow it into some massive problem and go up to the top floor and turn on the megaphones and start broadcasting uh, you know, from, from the top of the building. I think what it means is you have to take that as an action item. So, okay, uh, I've got this. And, and the book tries to outline, this is partly in response to my students' request, really outlines a four-step action uh, template to follow whether the issues are small or big. And it's a good habit to get into to follow this four-step process. Um, I have an acronym for it. I call it the ODA loop, O-O-D-A loop. So O-O-D-A are the four steps. O, observe. So, uh, so someone uh, makes a, uh, a comment in a meeting that, uh, that, that feels like it is uh, racially inappropriate. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, some sort of a slant on a racial category that you feel could easily be offensive. You observe that. You have to face it. You know, the first inclination is to sort of pretend you didn't hear it or uh, look around and see if anybody else noticed. Uh, you know, no, you're a moral agent. Observe. So that means, you know, look it in the face. Look it in the eyes. Then the second O is own. So this means... Think about this as an issue which you're responsible for. So you're not going to be able to pass it off. It doesn't have anything about what you're going to do. It just means, okay, I'm going to own this. And the reason I'm going to own it, and this is a really important concept I put in the book, is not because you're a whistleblower or not because you're some sort of morally superior person uh, or have all the answers and you're holier than everybody else. It's because as part of your identity, you consider yourself a person of conscience. And that's where the word conscience comes in. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. There's intuitions that are bothering you that come from your family, they come from your upbringing, your faith community, wherever their sources are. But they're, they're not difficult to hear if you are willing to turn the channel on. And I think thinking of yourself as a person of conscience, I'm a person of conscience who's a sales vice president. I'm a person of conscience who's a tech executive or a coder or a janitor or a security agent or, you know, whatever you are, but you're a person of conscience who is. And that means the ownership stage of this is pretty obvious because you just say, what would a person of conscience do? Would they let this comment pass? I don't think so. That then raises the question, what are we going to do about it? And the D is decide among the feasible options, what's to be done. Now, there are occasions when you don't have any time, and that, that D step is a nanosecond before the A step, which is action. But very often there is time. And even in this racial comments example, or this ambiguously phrased, apparently racial comment, um, if you don't say anything right then, 
you do have a moment to consider your options. Uh, should I go to this person after the meeting? Uh, should I ask the friend that I have in the next cubicle, did you hear that? What did you think? Um, and one of the things that I believe is really central to being effective in influencing in this particular kind of situation is something I call the power of two. Don't try to handle this by yourself. Always try to find someone you can share the idea or the problem or the perception with and get some input. Yeah. Uh, and it's at that decision level where you can that use that input to say, well, what are my options? I could uh, report it. I could tell my boss. I could tell my mentor. I could seek advice, um, you know, but I'm doing something. Uh, and then out of the, those options, you pick what you think is the best one and hopefully even have an ally when you go to talk to whomever about it. Um, it's a lot more powerful if you go, let's say this person made this comment and two of you ask for a moment after the meeting to just have a quick chat. Well, that's a whole different power dynamic than just one of you. Also, there's someone else there who's going to say, yeah, I heard it too. Or when the other person threatens you, it's less likely they're going to threaten anybody if there are two people there. There are all kinds of benefits that come from the power of two. So then, um, then, you, then you take action. So whatever your decision at the D stage is, you do it in the A. So O, O, observe, own, decide, act. And then loop is adjust. They're going to do something. And most value problems or ethical issues are not one stage events. They're multiple stages. It's going to require more than one iteration to get them handled effectively. Uh, and so the loop is see what happens and then loop back and start the process over. So I think when people think of a values conflict as the, as the issue, that's the, that's the thing we're looking for, a values conflict, a conflict involving values. Um, I am a person of conscience. Then whether it's small or big, it's still something that you need to own and you seek advice and input and then you take effective action. A couple of things but strikes me. This is a generally good process for almost any decision that you're making. So I get why you're saying that this is a great habit that's going to work in lots of cases. Um, I like the notion of observe. So it's easy to just say observe. It, you know, we both see it in meetings all the time. Something is, you know, kind of slight dicey and people are uncomfortable with it. And everybody looks down as yeah. in trying to exit the meeting and pretend that they weren't paying attention and they didn't actually even notice it. So I like the notion that you just flat out observe it and admit it and say it to yourself, oops, that made me uncomfortable. Oops, that's a risky place. All right. Yep. And and then I, but at that stage, uh, Wanda, as you well know, because this is core to what you uh, are an expert in as well, um, you don't have to accuse anybody. Mm -hmm. You can, you can share your perceptions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I could be wrong, but, mm -hmm. you know, that made me feel a little uncomfortable. I wonder if we could chat about that for a second. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you open the space for a dialogue. And sometimes, maybe even often, people didn't intend it to be the way right. it came across. They're not aware that it came across, even if they were thinking it was funny. 
Uh, and they're quick to withdraw it and to apologize and to try to heal the moment and ask for advice about how to do better. So, you, you know, you've actually led, right. which is, you know, which is what we need. We need values-based leadership. And that means you have to lead with values. You know, when, when value issues come along, you're the person that will effectively step up and flag it and say, let's see if we can do better. Right. And the, I mean, I like that sense that it's, I don't need to do an accusation. I don't need to confront somebody. And I'm going to borrow a phrase from a recent guest and say, I don't need to have somebody lose face in the moment. Right. There are alternatives that allow me to say, could we chat about that in private? I might even go back around the next day and say, you know, hey, I've been reflecting on this one with a colleague you know, I was un- was a little nervous about that one or yeah. uncomfortable with it, whatever the case is. Yeah. I, as a teacher, you know, I get this all the time. That there's no place more fraught today than a classroom uh, with uh, students who are very highly sensitized to identity and to vocabulary and to um, all the different ways that people are processing respect. And um, I think, you know, I often get students who will come up in office hours or, you know, after class or something and very diplomatically say, uh, you know, you're only calling on people on your right side. You know, have you, mm-hmm. are you aware of that? You know, and I'm right-handed and it's a subconscious and I will absolutely not aware of it. Thank you for, you know, for bringing that to my attention uh, or some sort of a, what I thought was humorous, uh, but it turns out that I said something um, I'll give you an example. I'm a boomer, my you know, generation boomer. And I once, uh, a couple of years ago, referred to um, East Asia as the Orient. And uh, I immediately got a flag um, because that's a Western perspective on the East. That's not mm-hmm. a respectful way to describe East Asia. And um, I was happy to take that correction. And they, I was grateful that they didn't stand up and accuse me of being, you know, a racially biased about anything. They just knew that I hadn't been thoughtful with my vocabulary and right. they privately came up and fixed it. And I was happy to get a correction. And now I know better. Yeah. It's, um, that's a gracious way to accept it. I know yeah. an awful lot of people who are very frustrated about the language, the micro details that we're focusing on the language but as you know, and I know, language is symbolic and people react to it. So the, I think it's important that we do pay attention to well, words that have meaning we didn't intend them to have. Words that hurt, whether we intend them to hurt or not, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, anybody who's got a long, successful marriage knows that words can hurt when they're not intended to. That's not a sign of bad character. It's just a sign of being human. Uh, and... Um, yeah, I, you know, I think it's very interesting the moment we're in in terms of language because they, they, and this is a very appropriate topic for this podcast because this language is a values issue. Um, and you don't have to, you know, if I'm a white male, um, and so I haven't had to put up with a lot of people uh, casting slurs on white males uh, for most of my life. I didn't have to compete with women when I was admitted to college. <laughs> uh, my, fa- mm-hmm. my father didn't have to compete with women or people of color when he went to college. Uh, and, um, and so we were privileged with 
being in a majority favored group where the language was the language that favored our position in society. And so that's being renegotiated. And I think appropriately so. So I think the, the, the question is not, do we need to be more careful about this and not use words that hurt? It's how can we come together to find the right language, which can get us over the hurt and onto solving problems. I think the one of the secrets here is a recognizing that this is an issue that matters, but B, when people call your attention to it, they do it in a way that is neutral. It's an observing, as you said, it's not an accusation because accusation is going to drive defensiveness. And then we start protecting and nothing happens good out of that one. It's just not no. going to work. Right. I, it's very difficult. There's something called the fundamental attribution error. I don't know if you're if you yep. work on that one. Um, and basically, the fundamental attribution error is a bias. And whenever we do something, uh, we process it as being situationally driven. Uh, you know, we had to drive fast. We were in a hurry to get to the emergency room. Uh, whenever we observe someone else doing something that we consider questionable, we attribute it as evidence of their character, their inner character. And uh, when things get off the rails with uh, language and identity these days, I think what's going on is that the people who feel the hurt attack the people who use the language because they perceive it as coming from an explicit bias, as a being evidence of character that is needs correction. And then, of course, when someone receives that message and feels like, well, this is just the language I was raised with. They see it as situational and not as anything evidence of any moral consequences. And so they become very defensive mm -hmm. and, and a little angry mm -hmm. because I'm being accused of having a bad character for no worry. There's no evidence of that. There's no reason for that. And then as soon as they respond that way, then the person who attacked them gets to say, see, I told you, see, yeah. you're right. You know, you're biased, just like we said. Uh, and so on we go into a place where nothing happens except an argument. Right. Uh, and then feelings become entrenched. And then we're in a series of conflicts that will require mediation, consultation, uh, facilitation, third parties. Uh, it, it polarizes, you know, into coalitions and off we go to the races. And so conflict management, which is, you know, about values as well as just about chemistry between people or between misunderstandings. Very crucial skill to manage effectively in the value space. I agree. I agree. You just described 80% of my coaching practice is helping <laughs> people unpack what they've gotten themselves into and figure out how to say what they need to say to each other in a more constructive manner. All right. So to go back to the ODOT loop, I think that's how you say it, the yeah. observe, I'm going to admit it and I might say something, but I'm not going to do it in an accusational way, in a neutral. I noticed, or this made me unnervous, I'm going to own, which means it is that I feel it is my responsibility to be a person of conscience as part of my character, and therefore I feel responsible for this. And then I want to decide, which are, yeah, decide is really looking at what are the options. And I like that exploring the possibilities. And I like the idea that you might do that with somebody else. In fact, I strongly recommend you find an ally 
because people will have different perceptions, different reactions, different notes on that, and then make a decision on what the action is. Yes. And then see what happens and adjust the loop. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the, the WorldCom um, financial uh, disaster back in the early 2000s, which was, the, it ended up in the loss of 40,000 jobs. It ended up in the collapse of a multi-billion dollar telecommunications company. Actually, the, the whole, all of WorldCom's assets are now owned by Verizon. But it started when the controller went to two bookkeepers and asked them, um, you know, we're coming up against this quarterly deadline for reporting our financial results. I need you to make two entries uh, just, you know, in our reporting books that are not violations of accounting principles. Uh, they're just sort of gray area entries uh, that are going to sort of forward look some things that we otherwise wouldn't have done that will make the things work out. And then after the quarter report, we'll, we'll fix it up okay. and we'll, it'll all balance out. And these two bookkeepers, very low level people, uh, you know, kind of felt that moment. They knew what they were being asked to do was questionable, but it wasn't illegal. They knew enough about it. Again, you know that. So they did it. And then the next quarter, they had to do it again. Mm -hmm. And they were already in the conspiracy and they were already part of the cover-up. Mm -hmm. And it kept on going for 18 months until the firm collapsed. And they were, they were criminally prosecuted. One went to jail. Uh, the bookkeepers, these little people. So that's what I mean by there's really your conscience is a, a canary in a coal mine. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn to pay attention to it, to listen to it, to trust it, and, and then to ask yourself, who am I? What does this conscience mean to me? And bring it to work with you. Look, everybody has a conscience. They're not going to leave their children, you know, in the cereal aisle at the grocery store and go off and talk to a friend on the other side of the store. They know that's wrong and, and they love their child and they would never do that. It's unthinkable. Just bring that attitude to work. It's, um, there are a lot of people who are cynical about the business world today and about whether it's possible to have a career in the business world, to advance, to reach senior levels and still have a conscience. Yep. I What's believe. your perspective? I, I think um, I like to tell my students, if you want to get sick, swim in a dirty pond. <laughs> and if you want to stay well, don't. And so I think we have choices in this life. And one of them is, uh, who do we associate with? Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's some, there's some uh, corrupt companies. I think there more often are corrupt parts of companies rather than the entire enterprise being corrupt. And if you find yourself in a group of people that offend you, Morally, they, they're doing stuff that you feel is um, crossing the ethical line. And you do try to take some appropriate action to bring your perspective to this. And they essentially backhand you. And you find yourself in a position of powerlessness. Then I think your job is to find another place to be. Um, and, the, you know, if people these days go through about 15 jobs during their career. Uh, so nothing says you have to spend uh, too much time in one of them that makes you feel dirty about who you are and that makes you lose sleep and that makes you feel like you're, um, like you're tarnished uh, in your ethical and moral uh, well-being. And it's an injury to you, just the same as if they'd uh, taken a knife and cut you. 
when people ask you to violate your own conscience uh, and you object and they basically say, sorry, this is the way it is, uh, then I think, you know, there's a shame on you if you say, well, then cut me, cut me again. Uh, uh, now, yeah, you'll make us, you know, it, it's risky to have to stand with your conscience. Your values are only worth the price you're willing to pay for them. Um, but, you know, I, I did a lot of research on this book and story after story after story of people who did the right thing uh, and sometimes had to quit or had to blow the whistle uh, because they felt the violations they were seeing were criminal and they needed to be brought to the attention of the authorities. And they had a rough patch, um, but they ended up two things. They ended up feeling whole instead of uh, alienated from themselves. And uh, two, they ended up in another job or another career in some cases where they were much better off being with people that they could trust, that they could align with, and that they could work with toward a greater good. So, uh, some, you know, it's like anything else. Um, you're asked to do work that you're not qualified for. And so you make, you know, you make mistakes. Well, you know, who would stay in a job doing something they're terrible at doing and being criticized over and over for making mistakes? Wouldn't you eventually say, maybe I should be in another job? Uh, and I think your values align with that kind of sense of competence and you shouldn't allow that sense of competence to be sacrificed. Well said. I will say among all the companies that I work with, I have seen examples of things that have challenged people's ethics in some significant ways. I haven't seen tons of them, but I have seen some of them. And I promise you in every single one of those companies, there's a whole collection of people who would care about that not happening or being reported or somebody taking action on it. I think so that's right. I am hopeful. <laughs> I, I know people get cynical, but I am hopeful. And I think if we, all of us, fail to take action to do this OODA loop, then we just allow that system to continue and to grow and to expand and that we are all, I think, obligated to live in a better world. Well, it's not, and it's not just a better world. I think, I think the better world is the result of people uh, doing better things. But, um, but what's the result if you stay in a corrupt culture and uh, become complicit in it? Not that you're the lead dog doing the wrong thing. You're just allowing it to happen. So, um, so you go home and your children uh, ask you about your work and you're alienated from your work. And so you become cynical about your work and you um, actually uh, start disrespecting your work. And then you start, um, you know, getting a little depressed about it because you've got eight hours or 10 hours of your day of you and you don't respect you doing it. Uh, so then, then you're not really the best parent you could be. Um, you may start drinking. You may start abusing some uh, substance or another to try to dull yourself to this problem that you're facing every day. I mean, you're, you're really uh, making your world much less than it could be your personal world and your community world. Um, you've lost the meaning in your work. That's tragic. So um, 
So even if the job is looks sort of like average job, I don't know what that would be. I mean, it's not something that everybody would go, oh, look, they're doing meaningful work. Um, work is meaningful because the people who are doing it feel that it's honorable. Mm-hmm. That's my view. It's an interesting one. Work is meaningful because people feel it's honorable. We could debate whether there's anything else attached to it, but that certainly is a starting point. Yeah, like no, I mean, I feel I, it's know, honorable. It's not going to have any meaning. I think that's straightforward. Yeah, and, and then we can go forward with work that you think advances the social cause or work that you think advances the greater good. But I can tell you um, uh, there are major religious institutions that have been around for thousands of years, apparently working toward, you know, uh, the greater good. And they have uh, betrayed their members by virtue of the conduct of the way they're run. So purpose alone doesn't guarantee the people doing the work are going to be people of conscience. That's right. That's right. People of conscience. Okay. All right, Richard, this is a perfect place to take a break as usual. So my guest again is Richard Shell. The book that we're talking about is The Conscience Code, Lead with Your Values and Advance Your Career as in the both come together, I think is the important part of that, that one. Um, the, again, the actions template on this one is called the OODA loop, which is observe, face it, but without accusation, own it, meaning feel responsible for it, and see your part of your identity as being a person of conscious, so you, you recognize you are responsible. Decide, meaning think about what are the feasible alternatives, and ideally consult with somebody else for perspective and additional view, and then take action. And ideally, action with somebody rather than action as solo agent. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we have much more to discuss about this one. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a 
group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Richard Schell. The book we're talking about is The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. The notion is that any, all of us are people of conscience, and we need to see that as part of our identity. We bring that conscience with us to work. And then when things become a small slippery slope or a big slippery slope for that matter, we don't want to just let it slide because the consequences for that one can be quite strong over time, both personally um, with family, as well as ethical violations and even legal consequences. So it's about deciding in the moment to take action. We have this, the um, action loop that you have, the OODA loop, which I love. I think it's very simple. Observe, own, uh, decide and then act and then loop, which is into just. And I want to reinforce, please don't ever try to do this solo. We can and will silence a single person. It's hard to silence two or more. So seek another perspective, find somebody who agrees with you, solicit that person and having the conversation with whomever you want to speak to and off we go. All right. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about is this is hard. I think this takes an enormous amount of courage, particularly when it's a person in power above you, let's say not your direct manager, but even somebody above that, who's asked you to take an action that makes you uncomfortable. So let's assume for the moment it's not an illegal action, because I think most of us would find the courage to stand up against that one, but it doesn't smell right. It doesn't feel right. Absolutely. So, you know, I, you use a really interesting word, courage. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think for the, in my research on this, what I noticed, I noticed a really interesting thing. The people who take action and who are people of conscience actually don't think of themselves as being courageous. Um, they think of themselves as having convictions. And what you, what you read over and over is, um, I didn't have any choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mies Giep is the Austrian woman who lived in Amsterdam, who was part of the group, group that uh, helped Anne Frank hide from the Nazis during World War II. Uh, and you know, she, she and the other uh, rescuers are enshrined in, in Jerusalem in, in a very special place that the Jews have made, this, the this Jewish state has made, which is the only place really in Jerusalem where non-Jews are honored in this way. They interviewed her after the war and they said, you know, wow, this was really courageous what you did. Um, you know, tell us why you did it. And she had two answers. She said, well, I was asked. 
And when you're asked to do something and you know that someone's life is in your hands, um, I could foresee many sleepless nights if I said no. And so it wasn't like I'm a moral hero and I'm a person of courage. And so I always step up when people ask me to do this sort of thing. It was much more um, humble than that. And it really sprung from her sense of humanity, her sort of shared sense of compassion for fellow human beings to protect them from suffering. And that that was a conviction she couldn't deny. She couldn't walk away from. And the consequences there were enormous. She put her life at risk. Most workplace situations are not that fraught. Um, so I think that the, salute, the, the way to talk about it is not courage or cowardice. It's conviction. And how strong are your convictions about your values? And that's a gut check. You know, is this really important? Is honesty important? Would I want my children to... Um, you know, watch me doing this action at work and be proud of me? Or would I try to hide out of shame so they wouldn't see me doing this? Uh, and that's, that seems to me to be more of the motivation that we ask of people of conscience is to have the power of their convictions. And later we'll say they were courageous. Uh, or maybe their families will give them credit for being courageous. But they won't. Okay. That is an interesting statement. Okay. So that means that if I'm going to be a person of conscience and I'm going to take action in this way, in the ways that we've talked about, then I need to understand what my convictions and values really are. And it's become popular to talk about values again. I mean, that I tabled that work 20 years ago, and all of a sudden I've resurfaced some of those old things. So do you have a process that you take people through to understand what their convictions and values are? Well, I, I, uh, I think that's something that's going to be really individual. Um, and so for um, I think a lot of people's values will come from their own stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they feel strongly about. But, the, um, but, but I did in the research discover that there's a sort of short list of values that seem to be the ones that come up the most in conflicts at work. And I have an acronym for this too. Uh, I call it CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T. Uh, and um, so you can call it the craft of ethics if you mm -hmm. want. Um, so C stands for compassion-related values. That's re values related to others' well-being, to their, uh, to their um, uh, physical and mental well-being. And, and we feel compassion. We want to protect people from uh, being injured in, in uh, various ways. And so that's an important value. Sexual harassment falls into this category. If you, you know, you're the victim of sexual harassment, then it's, uh, then it's, it's you know, your own well-being that's at stake. Uh, but let's say you observe a summer intern who's being sexually harassed. And they're going to be gone in a month. What are you going to do? Well, compassion is a value most people feel, and that's going to trouble you. And so I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to say people, that's one you ought to pay attention to. Okay. Uh, so compassion are um, respect. And, um, and so that, that's where a lot of the current um, 
troubles come with different identity groups and different uh, people of different age groups and different things where people feel they're not being respected, they're not being heard, they're not being brought into decisions, uh, they're not being um, given equal opportunities. So uh, respect values are flashpoints for a lot of conflict at work. Uh, so I think most people have that. I don't think you have to look too hard to feel like you want respect. Um, either Aretha Franklin taught us that. Um, um, A, uh, accountability. So one of the most important things at work is we feel we're pulling our part of the load. And when we see people who aren't or who are shortcutting and who are not taking responsibility and not doing what they were paid to do, we feel a lack of accountability. And that's a really important value because that's sort of what gets everybody, you know, I, I tend to say there's sort of three things to get right. You want to, you want to do things right. You want to do the right thing and you want to be the right kind of person. And people who aren't doing things right and not being held accountable, it's a big problem for everybody in the organization. So C-R-A for accountability, right. and then F for fairness. And so this is where social justice and equal pay and all these issues of how we allocate the benefits of employment, who gets to work at home, who has to come to work, who has to work nights or weekends, fairness. And I don't think you have to go to school to learn that you care about fairness. I think you pretty much everybody has that and a lot of disputes around it. And then finally, truth. So CRFT and truth values have to do with deceiving customers, uh, you know, being transparent, uh, uh, having a, a kind of a, a culture where people can speak up and speak their minds. Uh, so I think you can get 80% at least of the values that are going to matter to almost everybody on that list of craft values. And if you, you know, see something that makes you uncomfortable and then you survey those craft values and go, is this one of those? Uh, the chances are pretty high that when they connect, that this is something you need to own. Now, there may be values beyond that. So, um, you know, have, might be something to do with family or loyalty, or there are a lot of other things that can come, you know, come along. But those five, I think, capture a lot. And that are pretty good anchors to keep in mind. That's an interesting one. I get frustrated with all my clients with their value statements and they have the four or five words and plastered on the walls and all that sort of jazz. And I think it surely we don't need a statement. That's how we are to be behaving like trust and honesty and integrity and customer first and, you know, respect for each other and teamwork and collaboration. Like, yeah, okay, seriously, <laughs> do yeah. we need to say that? But I like this notion of just adopt the compassion, respect, accountability, fairness, and trust as a given for how everybody should be interacting with each other. And I may have some particular ones on top of that, Sure, but those are the big ones. Yep. I just, the T for me, the T is truth. truth. Because deception, truth. I said the wrong word. Yeah. You said trust. Well, trust is huge, uh, but I think trust is sort of underneath all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and trust is such a huge factor in culture in the way a workplace works right. as a matter of just fluid, uh, you know, human interchange. But, but truth is one that it's easy to get on the slippery slope of when you agree to let a misstatement or a deception, um, you know, go out the door in a report uh, with data that hasn't been checked or uh, you advise a client uh, with, um, you know, some made up statement that you didn't have time to prepare, but you sound glib and you want to look good. So you say it with confidence and it's not true. Mm -hmm. And if you're sitting with 
a boss who does that in a meeting, I think if you feel uncomfortable, which you should, then that's the kind of thing you're not going to say, sorry, boss, but you're wrong, you know, or where's your evidence for that boss? Uh, you're going to go to the boss and say afterwards and say what we talked about before. Uh, you know, I may be wrong, but uh, I wasn't aware that this data that you cited was actually something that we'd done the work on. Um, you know, could you just, you know, explain a little bit more about where that came from? And the boss says something like, well, I didn't have time to blah, blah, blah. And you say, well, you know, I think customer first is our motto in the company. And we've just said something to a customer that doesn't have the customer first. I wonder if there's some way we might be able to fix it. Uh, and, you know, let's see if we can talk about that. Okay. And, and you know, like you said earlier, the, the boss has probably made a mistake. And the boss is probably not acting as good as the boss would like to act. And... So you've just sort of, it's like a child and a parent, you know, you just sort of brought them along to realizing they made a mistake. And so sometimes you just get out of the way and let them fix it. And, you know, they'll save face and, and it'll all be okay. Or sometimes they get, um, it turns out to be part of a pattern and, um, and they've been lying to customers right along and maybe something has to be done about it. Uh, So now we go to our OTA loop. And we consult and we have to own it. Yeah, right. Compassion, respect, accountability, fairness, and truth. Yes. Um, I think, again, you know, the example that you just gave of going to the boss, the tone with which you go to that boss, the lack of accusations, the just presented on the table in a sort of neutral way. I observe this, maybe doing that with somebody else who was in the meeting so that there's a conversation about the topic and no accusation is the secret to having that turn out in a positive direction. 65% of the time. And the other 35% of the time, the boss is a narcissist uh, or an egomaniac or power related and feels threatened. And now they set in motion some retaliation uh, that you uh, feel. And so now the loop. Mm-hmm. So now, okay, uh, you know, this is important to me. I'm not going to be intimidated. That's not the way I want to live my life. And so now I have to think, okay, I've just been intimidated. That's absurd. Uh, I'm going to own this relationship because I want it to work and it has to work. And then I'm going to survey options, consult with the power of two and move and escalate and see what I have to do to get this back to a place where it ought to be. Okay. All right. I love it. Um, Richard, let's, let me ask the question now for the leaders that are listening to this podcast and who want to know, what do I do? to make sure that I have the right kind of culture around me or that my teams feel comfortable, that how do I make sure I'm encouraging my team to be people of conscience? Yeah. The more, you know, the research on this is interesting. I think the more now, you know, it's, there's cheap talk and there's real talk. Um, uh, Just talking about values as a matter of, you know, our culture is, very helpful. And there's some research that suggests that the more managers talk about the values that the company stands for, the more employees feel free to talk to them when they see a values problem. Okay. And so that's, you know, you get a speak up culture when you have people speaking about the culture. 
Um, um, but uh, then you have to look at what they do. And what I'm looking for as a leader or from a leader is to take action that shows you're willing to sacrifice something on behalf of the values and not just um, have a, uh, you know, words, but then end up uh, when the crunch comes or when, the, you know, you have to speak to an investor or to a, a shareholder or something, then you back away. Uh, so I'd say leaders need to speak and speak often about the cultural values uh, in order to open the subject, but then they have to take opportunities to visibly be willing to take a hit on behalf of the values of some sort. Now, you know, it doesn't have to be a financial hit. It can just be, we're going to go out of our way to show that these values are things that we live. We're not just talking. Uh, we're going to spend some time on it. We're going to have retreats about it. We're going to, uh, we're going to invest in processes that hold ourselves accountable to the process, not just the metrics that measure outcome, measure the process that leads to the outcome and uh, customer surveys that show us our customers trust us. And those sorts of metrics that uh, tend to underline these craft values and hold people accountable to them. I think we look for leaders to be imaginative and forward-looking uh, to keep that in focus always no day off. Okay. All right. My last question. It seems that we're talking about this now and we didn't talk about it 10 years ago. Is that because we've just gotten really bad and so far we've got to dial them, you know, come back and be a little more people of conscience? Is it because it's a generational issue? It, why this topic now? Wow. That's, a, that's, a, that's one I can only speculate on. I think uh, from my perspective, uh, one is a generational thing. So I'm, I'm a boomer, and in our generation, values were a big deal uh, because of the Vietnam War, because of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, there was a whole epic of, in the 60s of values first, and people sacrificed their careers in order to live lives that were consistent with their values. Um, we've now gotten to be you know, older in our positions, and I think we've been sort of waiting for this to come back again. Uh, but I think, that the, I think that the Gen Z and the millennials have been raised in an era in which these values took on a new energy. Me Too movement, uh, recently the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, a kind of extension of the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, which started long ago, but never quite paid off as fully as everyone hoped. And now people are holding us accountable. Uh, and I think that plus social media, because social media amplifies everything. And it especially amplifies values. And on a bad day, it's polarization. Uh, where people just go into their separate camps and shout at each other about their values. And on a good day, it is um, amplifying the coalition of people and the people who have shared values uh, to bring out the sort of um, confidence we have to speak up on their behalf uh, and to be people of action as well as people of conscience. So, um, so I think, I think, and that's with us forever now. 
There's no putting the genie back. So I think values are going to be a continual issue. Now, I don't think we're going to, uh, it's not going to go ebb and flow. I think, I think the, against the value position is the outcome position. You know, it's not about uh, all means just by the ends. So, uh, so I think that, that's the contradiction. All right. Perfect timing. Uh, Richard, we are out of time. I think we could keep talking about it for forever. And better still, we get to talk about it next week on a podcast when we dig deeper into this notion of negotiation, influence, and persuasion. My guest today is Richard Schell. He's a faculty member at the Wharton School. He leads the Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department. The book we've been talking about today is The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values and Advance Your Career. Um, Richard, I think you've convinced me of the power of being a person of conscience and given me several things to think about how to take action and how those apply in general, not just around these values in particular. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. To our guest, our audience, join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone, in particular around influence. If you like what you've heard today, please like us on your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to know more about how to apply these, tune into our subscription service at Out of the Comfort Zone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.